I'm Anne Doyle and here is the news. A HIV positive person who is on effective treatment cannot pass it on. Pass it on. Veda, Veda, Veda. I'm wet. <laughs> and I'm tired. But I'm back home with you. How are you? I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm home. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not wet. <laughs> and I might be a little bit tired, according to TripAdvisor. <laughs> <laughs> Two stars. <laughs> yeah. But I'm good. I had a very busy couple of days. We've been filming a few more scenes for our film, which is called, it's called Pregnant with a Drag Queen. Working title. Um, And we were filming at the weekend. And she was being my music teacher, Miss Fitzpatrick from school. And we had this whole uh, classroom of kids having this music class and she was teaching them my song, Super Marche. There's this little kid called Freddie who's playing me and he's just the sweetest thing. He's just perfect casting. He's so kind of shy and sweet, but also a bit of a show off. <laughs> so like you. <laughs> Billy Ed, Elliot, but, you know. um, yeah, so I just had a wild time with that. And yesterday we were filming with uh, a great actress called Jacinta Sheeran. And our friend from the Pause Five tribe, Adrian, mm-hmm. who uh, Adrian Duggan, who is playing me as a schoolboy in these scenes, and she was playing my mom. And we'd arranged to have an old car turn up, an '80s car. And when I got there, it just happened to be a red Mercedes that was identical to the car that my dad had when I was wow. a kid. So that was like a really wow. sweet little detail. And it's surreal to be making a film about your own life. How does it feel when you're in a room and all the kids are singing your song? Great, really great, because it was my idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What you been up to? Speaking of films, uh, you um, were away screening yes. a film. Yes, our film. Our film. <laughs> Another one. Jeez, get off our TV, will you? Yeah, no. So um, the Irish consulate paid for our movie How to Tell a Secret to go over to EX Conference, which is European AIDS Clinical Society. But it's the biggest uh, HIV conference in Europe that they do every two years. So it's based in Warsaw, which is like one of my favorite cities in all of Europe. I've never had a bad time there, as you can probably tell, Veda, by like the 10 cold sores on my face. <laughs> Three <laughs> nights of partying. But um, at the same time, um, I got to talk to loads of the HIV positive community, the best activists in the world were there, who I just adore. No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you, uh, the gaping hole with you there. Don't but, you, you dare call me a gaping hole. <laughs> So the, the um, film premiere went, it was one of the legacy activities of the overall conference, which was amazing. Um, it was received really, really well. Like, right. you know, people just loved it. They were actually blown away. So many people were crying because a lot of people there lived with HIV, but like they lived in Poland, for example, you know, where it's a lot more trickier to yeah. people. Um, so the overall experience was good. You know, me and my access to medicine said, like you go in and it's just pharma stalls everywhere. Yeah everywhere now these conferences wouldn't happen without pharma funding you know they just simply wouldn't and they're important uh-huh. to exchange knowledge and um for activists to meet up as well um but yet like there wasn't one like topic on access to medicines in europe which i found just really hard and um, a lot of it was kind of hard science but nothing really new you know we're talking about long-acting injectables which people might be going on one injection every two months and it's available in ireland for people who want to go on it but there are biological failures that are happening meaning you just take yours every two months and for some reason it just doesn't work you get a viral rebound or you become detectable again so i think they're just looking at why that happens now that only happens in very few people so they're still trying to figure out why 
there's a few kind of risk factors if you have a BMI over 30 for example um, or if you have resistance to NN or TIs or integrase inhibitors which are different HIV drugs so it wouldn't affect a lot of people but it's just to say that it is something to discuss with your doctor because it can happen to around one to two percent of people on these long-acting injectables so these are important conversations to have speaking of important conversations though for people who might not know why is it problematic to have so much pharma money in conferences like that well for me um let me let i always uh, like try and i'm trying to be balanced here if i can because what i see when i talk to my friends in romania or poland their government aren't giving them funds to go to talk to sex workers every major HIV or people who inject drugs every major HIV. That's the last they'll give money towards. But pharma money does allow them to do that, right? So it does kind of give that independence. And they do amazing work. They do amazing work thanks to this funding. However, what that means is we stop asking critical questions around the issue around access, okay? So the access of treatment that we have in Ireland or even access to PrEP um, might not be the same that's happening in Romania or Croatia, for example. Um, so although this funding, yes, it's allowing us to do a lot and our governments aren't giving us the money to do it, um, it's also stopping asking us the critical questions and then pharma keep making their billions while so many people don't have access to the same quality of life that we do here. That we talk about this on a larger scale where people don't have access to much treatment at all and then they're dying they're just dying i'm just talking from a european's perspective here so it is uh, it, it's, it's a tricky one in terms of funding mechanisms right it really is but at the same time as activists we have to ask the critical questions and we need to continue fighting and fighting and fighting rather than just continuing to build relationships with our funders because we don't like you know smack the hand that feeds us basically uh -huh. So we need a reckoning. We really do need a reckoning. And one thing that we see at these conferences, we want to go beyond suppression, right? I've talked about this a few times on the podcast where we want to be more than just virologically suppressed so we can't pass it on. Because as we grow older, we're more likely to get, um, become frail, get cancers, all of these different things. So we need access to all these different treatments. Now we can live as ourselves and we get treated very quickly because we, get to, we see consultants twice a year. Um, so anything that's happening, we, see, we get seen to very quickly. Um, but the problem is not everyone has access to cervical cancer drugs, you know, drugs if you have anal cancer or throat cancers or whatever. So um, although, yes, we might have more access to HIV treatment or hepatitis C treatment, we don't have access to stuff to make us holistically well because of the intellectual property regime. So it is in all our interest to keep fighting, to keep being critical. And if, if we're not even being selfish, just to try and help our neighbours who are dying of cancer down the road, who can't have access to treatment. So we need to keep up the fight. We do. And it's been day for those of you who got really... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take me out the with the game. trash. Yeah, um, yeah Robbie. And, and on the more micro level, like I think when we started doing our activism, I wasn't as um, up to speed as I am now with the issues around intellectual property and problems with big pharma. And we were approached in numerous ways at the start by people who wanted to sponsor us with pharma money in one way or another. And, um, and we never had to take it. And that's all I wanted to say. For anyone like us who's doing activism and trying to make change for people living with HIV, you don't need their money. And speaking of don't need their money, we are having a World AIDS Day party at the George on yes. Friday the 1st of December to um, celebrate the community and to commemorate those mm -hmm. who we lost, but also to meet the one and only amazing charity case from RuPaul's Drag Race UK. Confirmed. Confirmed. Coming amazing. to do a show with us. 
um, and I can't wait to see all the tribe. It's been a while, and mm. I can't wait for them all to meet. Charity case. Luke referred to this whole operation as the Make-A-Wish Foundation. <laughs> which I have to say, Luke to me is killing me. It's killing me. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it is, babe. Make-A-Bish Bish Foundation. So come and check it out. Put it in your diary, kids. Yeah, come join us. Have lots of fun. Show your support for the pause community. And if you're pause, come join us. Free gig. No cover. No pharma money. On a Friday as well. There we go. It's the only free place on a Friday, so you have no excuse. Oh, well, on that note, that's our preamble done, I think, Veda. And I'm very, very happy to introduce our next guest. It's Dunnock O'Marley. How are you doing, Dunnock? I'm doing well. I'm very happy to be here. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. Dunnock, I met you a few weeks ago um, down in a very dark basement. Yeah. (laughs) In a club called Sweatbox. Yeah. (laughs) And it was fleeting. Uh, We had our uh, mutual friend, Ben. Is that right? Bernard. Bernard, yeah. 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 So I'm obviously not that close to him. (laughs) 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 You were that night. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Few drinks in. Uh, And we met fleetingly. And um, uh, you wrote to me the next day and you said that... um, you just moved back to Ireland, and we'll get into that recently. Uh, we'll get into that uh, soon. But uh, yeah, you'd like to get more involved in the HIV community. So here you are. This is your moment. We're so excited to have you. And let's just start off with you and your story. Um, you're from Ireland originally. Yeah, I was born here in uh, 1972. I'm 51 years old, and I grew up here. And I have the kind of classic 1970s, 1980s Irish upbringing. Um, and then I lived here through college. I left when I was 21. And then I lived overseas for 28 years and I moved back last year. Wow. And uh, I guess, you know, growing up in Ireland as you're a kid, it's kind of a great place to grow up. There's lots of freedom. Um, but as I started getting older and becoming aware of my sexuality, things changed a little bit. And around that time, it was when HIV AIDS was first emerging. Mm-hmm. It was the era of the tombstone ads, you know, everything that kind of came with it. That entire conversation in my mind kind of got reduced to, you know, being gay is bad, getting ill with AIDS is bad. These are things that you've got to avoid and you've got to keep a secret. And that's kind of what informed my decision to move overseas. Like from my perspective, I could be I could be more my authentic self if I was living somewhere where it wasn't a crime to have gay sex or there wasn't a complete societal or kind of governmental chilling effect on being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the beginning of my story and how I found myself in London at the age of 21. What was life in London like as a young gay man? Uh, very colourful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was really lucky. I got recruited out of college in my second year there to go and work at a law firm in London. So, like, I knew two years ahead of time that I was going to go there. And once I arrived, I'd, you know, have an income and I'd be able to establish myself. And life was great. Like, it was my 20s. It was exciting. You're kind of trying to find yourself as a young adult. And I was making new friends. You know, my career was beginning to go places. I bought my own apartment. Life was good, and I was really. You were a catch, babe. Yeah. I don't know, know. but it was uh, yeah, it was great. And um, then when I was around twenty eight, I started to feel sick, and uh, I was in Toronto actually on a vacation visiting a girlfriend, 
and I suddenly started to feel really unwell mm -hmm. and I couldn't explain it uh, it wasn't like hangover or you know any of the usual things and I just started to feel worse and worse and worse and uh, I started like vomiting a lot I started not being able to sleep I had this stuff in my mouth I didn't understand and later learned was thrush mm -hmm. um, so I, I was getting pretty sick and I couldn't explain it to myself and so I kept going to doctors and it kind of sounds a bit ludicrous maybe in hindsight but it's kind of like what I was saying I had kind of locked away HIV in this like box mm -hmm. in my mind as something that shouldn't be looked at or interrogated mm -hmm. and it actually never occurred to me that it could be HIV like I was like I picked up some weird uh, illness and or did something. the doctors not pick it up eventually one of the doctors said to me are you in a risk group for HIV and I was like no me? Who dare me dare no dare yeah how <laughs> dare you <laughs> come on parents <laughs> That I was like, <laughs> but then I was like, oh fuck, maybe I should go and get that checked out. Uh -huh. And so I did. So uh, it was, uh, I was 29 and uh, I was still in London and I went for my test and I got the positive test result. And I remember the room, I remember the guy telling me, I remember the color of the walls, I remember all these details about it. And I remember just going into total shock. Mm -hmm. Even though I was sick and even though I had literally been led to this moment by a medical professional. Yeah. I was still completely shocked and uh, I was just, I was so scared and I was so sad. What uh, year was this again? This 2002. Okay. Yeah. And um, it was, looking back, was kind of handled not very well because uh -huh. I think, um, you know, a lot of the medical professionals at that time, they, you know, it wasn't that long before maybe seven years before there was like the peak year of death from HIV and a lot mm -hmm. of these medical professionals were traumatized they've been working through yeah. this for a long time and they kind of almost treated me like you know another person on the conveyor belt kind of thing so it was like this is you this is your results here's a phone number call this number two weeks time you'll go and you'll have your blood taken and they'll assess how far you know it's progressed mm -hmm. Do you have anyone to take you home? No. It's like, okay, well, call someone tonight. And that was kind of it. So uh -huh. I emerged onto Horse Ferry Road in London. And I remember I was like, fucking hell. Like, what am I going to do now? And, um, you know, I had all those negative thoughts that, you know, you might anticipate. Like, it's my fault. I deserve it. You know, um, I'm going to die or I've ruined my life or it's not going to turn out the way I wanted. And um, I kind of became a bit overwhelmed by that. And it was compounded a little bit by the fact that I was alone, right? I lived alone. I didn't have a partner. And I didn't tell anyone for months. Like, I just kept it in. Sat with it. And um, eventually, I kind of... And it was also, I didn't feel well physically, you know? And so, eventually, I was like, you know what? You've got, to, you've got a choice. You can just stay in this stuck place or you can try and figure this out. And um, Can I ask you, Yeah, who is the first person that you told? It was a girlfriend of mine in New York. I called her and I told her. And she was like, I'm so sorry, I love you. And then my friends were kind of wondering what was up because it mm -hmm. then came to my 30th birthday and it was like this big party. And ordinarily I would have been like, you know, 
having a great time, but I was kind of subdued and, you know, not very into party atmosphere. And they were asking me, like, what's up with you? And I didn't look well. Like, you know, I'd lost a lot of weight. And um, I kind of eventually summoned, you know, my closest girlfriends to my apartment in London. And I sat them down and I told them. And they were sad and they were kind of fearful, but they nobody kind of rejected me or no one was like oh my god like you know i can no longer associate with you or anything mm-hmm. they just there was care and concern um and like in the parallel track with my medical conversations it was kind of the same thing you know my cd4 number was low it was like 400 and they said if it goes below 200 you have to go on medication and i was like i'm not going on medication that's for sick people like you know complete denial mm-hmm. in my mind uh-huh. you know the pill would make it real yeah. and it was also forever so it wasn't like I could try it and then when I felt better you know mm-hmm. reverse um, I really did not want to go there and um, I think what really changed for me was when I got met the right doctor uh-huh. it's oh, am- yeah it's yeah. amazing when uh, and I married him <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not a doctor yet <laughs> you meet some people in your life and you don't necessarily realize it at the time that they have this profound impact on you but now looking back I mean previously it was like I was saying the the medical staff they would they would be very like here's the information here's what you go and do Mm -hmm. but there wasn't a lot of warmth or empathy or seeing me as a full human and I met this doctor uh, and she was like she was so kind and so warm and she would just talk to me she would laugh at my jokes she would take time and I just felt like seen as a person for the first time not mm-hmm. like a HIV patient and um, I just really felt safe with her and I would say to her look if you tell me not to worry I'm not gonna worry mm-hmm. so should I worry she's like nope you're good I was like, okay great and I was like so how long am I gonna be healthy how long am I gonna live she'd say indefinitely with this big beam <laughs> which you know literally was quite a good dodge because yeah. it actually doesn't really mean anything uh, yeah, exactly. but the way I heard it and the way she communicated to me was you're fine don't yeah. worry go live your life and that was the turning point for me mm-hmm. um, and I kind of took her advice I started the medication and then it all started to shift in my mind like the box that I had locked was mm-hmm. open and now I was beginning to interrogate it and I was beginning to confront it and I was beginning to create my own way of coping with HIV and like not being scared any longer. You were going to take it to court. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. So you went to live in New York then, right? I was in, I was in London for a long time and I, I lived in Amsterdam for a little bit. Right. And then in uh, around 2008, I got really lucky and I got a job at Google. You're the only person to get a job in 2008. I know, it was like ridiculous. I have been been in Amsterdam. And I became the CEO of Google. Yeah. (laughs) I lived off the bread line. Exactly. No, I I was really fortunate. And again, it's like dumb luck. It was like a conversation I'd had in a bar like two years before with someone and we kept in touch. And then they were like, oh, I remember you. We're actually looking for someone who could do X, Y, Z. I was like, Yes. So networking does actually work. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Uh And so uh, I was working with them in London and things were going good. Like I was enjoying myself. It was a great place to work. And um, 
you know, I was aware of my HIV status, obviously, mm-hmm. and I was on those meds that could make you a bit loopy. Mm-hmm. And the Wait, wasn't it illegal to go over to America until 2009 to get HIV? Yeah, and yeah. you know, I actually won, I had always wanted to live in the US, I actually won a green card in the lottery, and yeah. I couldn't take it up, because I was HIV positive. Yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, nonsense like that. But, um, like the people at work, I told them because I would have to go to California a lot for work mm-hmm. and I was like really anal about taking my medicine. I was like, I have to take it at the same time. Yeah. And so I would be taking it at like 2 p.m. Pacific and by four o'clock I would be like, you know, a marshmallow and going to meetings and people would be like, are you okay? And so mm-hmm. eventually I told my boss, I said, actually, no, I'm taking this medication that makes me kind of mentally insane for about six hours. A triplet? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, We've been there, but don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I was in one of those divers' helmets, like you know the metal divers' mm-hmm. helmets for deep sea, like totally dissociated from what was happening, wow. just slow motion. Um, but they were like really supportive and uh, kind of accommodated that, mm-hmm. and ultimately that's how I ended up in the U.S. Like they transferred me to California to go and work in Mountain View at their HQ and. Uh, they were like, do you want to go and do that? I was like, yes, yes. absolutely. And uh, that's how I ended up there. Wow. Yeah. Um, how long have you been in America for? I was there 12 years in total. What's it like living with HIV in America? Because I would say this, I was chatting to someone recently and they were like, actually living with HIV in New York is quite difficult. That there's still a lot of stigma there, which you wouldn't really think because <laughs> of the, you know, the, the history of the mass mobilization that happened there with the community. Yeah that you think that they'd have a better handle on the stigma generally but what was your well with a handful of exceptions who i love um americans are no crack (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) fair enough enough. i I think in new york in particular it's so hyperactive and so transient um there's always someone better than you in New mm. York. There's always someone better looking, richer, you know, more interesting, more whatever it is. And so the kind of corollary of that is if there's a reason not to be into you, that kind of gets amplified. And so my experience was that there was not a huge lack of curiosity around HIV. It was still kind of, you have it, okay, well, sucks for you, but there's this smorgasbord of alternatives available to me. So. I'm not really going to kind of engage with you beyond that because mm. I don't need to. You move on to the quote unquote next best thing, yeah. you know, what like it's an ideal that everyone's going towards. It's actually unhealthy, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, how can you actually ever be happy with what's right in front of you? Exactly. If that's, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. And so do you feel like that's still the reality in New York? Has that changed over time? I think with U equals U, it has become a bit more mm-hmm. uh, contemplative, mm-hmm. like people you know it's information and i think with COVID as well like the role of science and public health has really helped people kind of look Mm -hmm. again afresh at a situation and what is the current state of information yeah but you know i regularly encounter people who would have an irrational reaction and to me that's actually pretty helpful because i know to avoid that person yes back to the filter yeah exactly it's actually kind of you know the the qualities i value in people are openness compassion Mm. curiosity and if you still with the knowledge of u equals u have a problem with hiv positive people it's clear you're none of those things you're not compassionate you're not curious and you're kind of an ignoramus Mm. yeah bye bye have you pretty much 
have you managed as a queer person who's lived all over the world to stay close to your family? Yeah, yeah. How um, do you manage that? Visiting, communicating, talking, you know, sharing. Um, you know, ironically, I didn't share my HIV status with my family for a long time. And when I knew I was coming on this, you know, it was important to me, obviously, that I did that beforehand. And so I recently communicated that to both my sister and my mother. And my sister was like, why didn't you tell me years ago? Like, uh, she was like, oh my God, I can't believe you've been, you know, living with this and you never shared it. And um, it kind of brought me back to the locked box immediately. And I was like, yeah, why, why didn't I share it? And I guess it was, you know, some, I get it eventually became a habit, but I guess the original reason for not sharing it was fear or mm -hmm. not wanting to concern someone. And that was particularly the case with yeah. my mother. And the way I broke the news to her, I said, you know, mom, I've been doing a lot of work with HIV charities and advocacy. And did you know that today, if you have HIV, mm -hmm. you have a normal life expectancy and you can't communicate it? And she's like, oh my God, that's amazing. And she told me about a friend of hers who was a nurse and back in the 80s, she would sit with AIDS patients because mm -hmm. their families wouldn't visit them and she would hold their hand and she always thought that was lovely. And I said, well, mom, I've been living with HIV for 22 years. And she was like shocked, but fine. She was like, wow. And then about 10 minutes later, she said to me, were you very scared? And I said, well, maybe a bit at the beginning, but everything's great now. And it was like very easy and a kind of nice warm moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your mom's name? Anne. Uh, hi Anne, we love to give Mam a shout out to Anne. Auntie Anne. <laughs> Auntie Anne. <laughs> and uh, your sister, what a great response as well. Yeah. I was, uh, like, normally when uh, you tell people you live at HIV, it's not really stigmatizing. The first question you ask is, why didn't you say it to me before? You know, yeah. that's just generally what I hear from people yeah. who disclose these days. And the answer is complicated. It's right? complicated. It's, it's complicated. not you, it's me. It's, it's the stigma. It's yeah. a lot of stuff, you know. It's a lot of stuff. It's yeah. wild how secrets work in families. I can relate to so much of what you said right from the start, because we were both born in 1972 and grew up in okay. the same sort of environment, yeah. you know. Um, but my mother, uh, in a funeral car on a motorway in New York, a couple of weeks ago, at my beloved sister-in-law's funeral, um, told me and my siblings, um, that my cousin had died at AIDS. Oh, wow. And we never knew that. Wow. Until that moment. And that was and only a week or two, or two, two, about two, three two weeks or two ago. weeks ago, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was wild because how secrets work in families and how they paint they, they paint a certain picture. Yeah. And then when, when they come out, they change the picture. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple yeah. as that. Amazing. And my grandmother, who I absolutely adored, my cousin lived with my grandmother, and my grandmother took care of them right up to the end. So for me, that was a huge thing to know about her that I never knew before. Yeah. Um, and it made me understand better her relationship with me and our relationship together, and why she held me apart a little closer right. than maybe the rest of the family. And also, it made me... Um, understand her relationship with queer people and gay men in particular she loved them she's the first fag hag I ever knew <laughs> the first time that out gay person walked into our family home he arrived with my grandmother wow, wow. that's cool 
and I understand where that relationship came from because she would have had to be in the guy clinic in the hospital with everybody mm-hmm. else in the then called the AIDS ward yeah. and would have interacted with so many gay people yeah. and that's something I never got before or understood before and yeah. it's amazing isn't it really yeah it really is out with the secrets they're a bit like bottles of wine though the longer you keep them closed they're almost the juicier they yeah. are <laughs> <laughs> when you pop that cork yeah 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 we're rotten there we're open way too much <laughs> well, you're a box wine baby <laughs> that's it <laughs> what amazing and um, well done to Millie for opening up that yeah, secret that she obviously just closed off but potentially right I guess like, she, she w- it wasn't her secret to I, suppose, I guess in yeah. her mind you know mm-hmm. and now almost everybody related to those story has passed mm-hmm. and that's where my mom's at now in her life and, and I think her energy was very much like there's no shame in it my mom's been on our podcast she came to our um, afternoon tea mm-hmm. movie premiere yeah. she knows the tea yeah. <laughs> she She's knows great. what stigma is we love Millie. so I think she just probably felt like it was the time to just mm-hmm. yeah. share the information yeah. <laughs> I think our, uh, Irish culture anyways especially around sex you know it's just put all the dirty stuff under the rug and never see it as, as much as possible there's a real culture uh-huh. of that in Ireland so I do think it's a like Millie opening up potentially shows times changing for people of all generations in this country uh-huh. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, how, how does that feel? How to does know? it feel? Yes. Wild, you know, wild. It feels like uh, you think that HIV comes into your life because you're this gay, sexually active person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you realize it was in your life already. Yeah. It was already shaping your life. It was already one of the influences around you and the reason that you had these particular relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, so look you are um, not only a daddy with a Z you're a daddy with a D right <laughs> yeah, you're an actual you're an actual father I am to yeah. a gorgeous child do you yeah. want to talk us through the story of becoming a father yeah I mean it was something that I had always kind of considered and was curious about mm-hmm. and uh, it never went away like I would kind of revisit it and I'd be like, no, I'm still interested in that. And, you know, again, going back to my upbringing, 1970s, 1980s Ireland, I just thought it was off the table. Yeah. Like, you know, you won't get married, you won't have children. And that kind of conditioned my thinking. And uh, as I got older, I was like, you know what, maybe that's not true, right? And um, I then started getting a bit long in the tooth I was around 45 I was like listen if you're going to do this you've got to get on with uh, get on with it and I was clear that I didn't want to end my life without being a parent like mm-hmm. I didn't want to miss out on that experience and it, was, it wasn't like this hallmark moment where I was like you know oh I'm going to you know have a child and my life is going to be amazing it was just something that I felt it was something that I really really wanted to do um and so I started the adoption process and it's long and it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And my first question to them was, look, I'm HIV positive. Is that going to be a problem for you? They were like, why would it be a problem? Oh, yes. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Did um, you start this in New York? Did you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so you go through a lot of background checks, you know, your uh, you know, FBI security clearance, almost level kind of mm-hmm. stuff. 
um, your income, like you know, and you could have a social worker who comes and looks at your home and checks. We'd you never out. passed that test, Fader. <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was worried. Like she said to me, well, "What's your plan for this child?" I was like, "What do you mean?" She was like, "Well, how, what are you going to do with him in the first year?" I was like, "Not kill him." Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> she's, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay. like, so yeah, so you you go through the process and then you're like approved, mm -hmm. and then it starts a matching process, and that can happen the next day or it can never happen. It's like dumb luck. And um, I wanted to see what happened. I said, I'll take a boy or a girl. I'll take any race mm -hmm. of any disability. Just, you know, I'm going to see what comes to me. Um, wow, you are amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I love it. Yeah. I you mean, just want to give someone love. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right? And um, so I was matched a couple of times and the situation didn't work out. And, you know, I got as far as coming up with a name for the kid and it didn't work out and mm -hmm. I was becoming a bit disheartened and I said okay I'm just my information is there it might happen it might not happen I've got to kind of just you know live my life and as soon as I made that kind of decision that it might not happen of course it happened I got the call look we have another we have another family they like your profile they want to talk to you and uh, six months later Oren was born and uh it was like I remember I was it was kind of funny actually and I did think back to my HIV diagnosis mm -hmm. because I remember I was on a plane to Salt Lake City that's where he was born and I was kind of like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> you know you're you're 48 you're single like you're kind of you know you're not very well established like in terms of being set up uh, to provide you know a home and everything to a kid and I was like you know what I've been through HIV I've like this is nothing you know mm -hmm. let's go and um i love that yeah and i remember i got to the hospital and it was peak covid and um you could only have one visitor and so the birth mom obviously was in there with her with him but so was the birth father and they were like well you can't go in i was like okay so i was like i understand went out went around the corner walked back in and said I'm here to see my kid to somebody else <laughs> I was not not going to see him yeah of and, course. Uh, I got up to the door of the neonatal unit he was in the intensive care unit because he was on a ventilator just because he had swallowed some fluid when he was mm -hmm. born and I got there and um, I rang the bell and this woman came and she was like can I help you I was like yeah I'm here to see my son She's like, well, what's his name? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't given him a name yet. Yeah. And she was like, well, who are you? And I said, look, I said, this might be a bit unorthodox, but I'm here to adopt him. Mm -hmm. And I understand I don't have any legal standing, but I've flown in from New York and I've been leading up to this moment for months. So mm -hmm. I've been told I can't come in, but I'm going to ask you if I can wait there. And I was like, oh, shit. And Utah is Mormon, right? So they're mm -hmm. not a huge fan of the gays. So. Uh -huh. I didn't know if she was going to come back with security or what was going to happen. So we acting real butch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Don't, don't mess with me. I know. Right? And so she returns and uh, she leads me into a room and she uh, instructs me to like wash my arms up to my elbows course, kind of thing. Yeah. And I was like, well, where are we going? She was like, don't you want to meet your son? Oh. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, then I met him and he was like this big. And, uh, you know, on the second day, he just grabbed my little finger. And that was it. Yeah. What age is he now? He turns three uh, in December. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and you guys are making a home here? 
yeah it was uh it's because of him that i'm here again um you know if i if i was still by myself i'd probably still be happy living in new york Mm -hmm. you know but um i was working for spotify when he was born and they had this really great parental leave policy six months full pay you know Mm -hmm. fantastic so uh i took that and came back to ireland with him and it was in the back of my mind that we might stay you know i wanted to see how it would go and um I just observed that he was like a lot happier here. He had mm-hmm. cousins and a grandma and aunts and uncles. There was more space. It was calmer. I was calmer because, you know, I wasn't in New York and kind of on that hamster wheel. Yeah. And I said, you know what? We're going to stay. We're going to make a home here. Yeah. Well, as an award winning Spotify podcast and yeah. <laughs> as a musical artist, I just like to say you're both welcome. Yeah. <laughs> This is the cake made of all to you, right? Yeah, it's great. Um, as and as someone who lived in America as a young kid, and it was New Jersey, God forbid. But um, Ireland's such a better place to grow up, I think. Yeah, it's just nothing is an emergency here, whereas mm. pretty much everything is an emergency in New York. It's like like a rise and stuff. Well, maybe not so much in New York. New York's a, its own little bastion, but America as a whole, right? Yeah, and it's going. It's kind of nuts what's happening there right yeah. now with the whole political situation. Mm. So, yeah, I. I'm really happy I had that experience mm-hmm. and I'd always wanted to live there but now that I'm older and I just you know have a bit more perspective I'm I'm very happy with my decision yeah can I ask um, a lot of the parents <clears throat> that we talk to um, living with HIV do you know a big question in their mind is how do I tell my child that I live with HIV how do I talk to the child about HIV how do I let them know um, have you had that kind of uh, internal discussion about how you might do it or is I've that already told him <laughs> yeah I've told him he sees wow. me organize my medication I say daddy has a virus this medicine helps me stay well it's nothing for you to worry about um, and he he's you know not even three yet so I know mm. he doesn't kind of fully intellectualize it but he's like okay daddy I don't want I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not going to hide it any longer and I'm certainly not going to let that reverberate down the generations uh-huh. he's going to know and it's just going to be another thing and it's well, it's nothing shame free living exactly it yeah. won't be a secret in a funeral car exactly. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> exactly wow. sometimes we have a tendency to overcomplicate things don't yeah. we yeah. Well, children. Not me, Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see my look for the gala? Yeah. <laughs> um, deconstructed, complicated. We love it. Um, I I think that approach is um, incredible. I I think it's like kind of pioneering almost from the conversations I've had with a lot of parents. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot going on as a family. You know, I'm a single dad. Mm-hmm. We're different colors and mm-hmm. races. You know, he's adopted. I'm gay, I'm HIV positive. There are a lot of conversations to have. (laughs) Like, you know, at the Montessori Gates, we're we're clearly the outlier in terms of the family. Um, You're also every show on Netflix, though, so... (laughs) (laughs) So at least there's that. But, you know, someday someone's going to give him shit about his skin colour, and I can't prevent that. Um, But what I can do is give him tools and the resilience and the knowledge to understand that when someone does that they're the problem and yes. to me that's a mirror mm-hmm. of my experience with HIV mm-hmm. and I feel you know very um, privileged to be able to kind of try and equip him with all of those things and 
I don't want him to grow up and have to learn that you know, oh, daddy is HIV, but don't tell anyone. Or yeah. like you know, it's not not that at all. He he already knows, and you know, it's it's kind of open open information in the family. Yeah, that's great. Well, and uh, he wanted to be on the podcast with us today, didn't he? Yeah, I would. <laughs> before I was taking him to school, I was like, Dad, he's going to go on a podcast. He's like. I don't want the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, from me. Yeah, yeah, me too. We haven't had a child yet. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be he would point to every single object in this room and ask you what it is. Oh, yeah. Great. Oh. Yeah. I'd like to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need a child's interpretation. <laughs> uh, what's next for Dunnock? What's next for your life? I mean, I'm still uh, acclimatizing, reacclimatizing, mm-hmm. navigating reverse culture shock it kind of is a thing like you know growing up here I, I understand how it works but I also don't understand how it works yeah. and I guess just building my community and circle of friends like you know I had friends from when I was here in the 90s but you know there's a whole 30 years in between and you yeah. can't just pick that up um, so yeah it's about kind of deepening my connection with the community here making new friends yes yeah that's going to be challenging as uh, being a parent as well. Yeah, being you in know, your 50s and a single parent. It's Robbie rocks up to a new city, he goes on Grindr, boom, <laughs> he's making friends. <laughs> yeah. Right, left and centre. Just kidding. No, I just mean that when you can go out, socialise, sure. you want to make friends, you go to a drag show, you make yeah. friends, you know. Yeah. But there is a lot of diverse new stuff that wasn't around when you and I were twinks. Absolutely. There's running groups like yeah. rugby, there's like clay modeling poetry a men's development course there's mm-hmm. all kinds yeah. of like good juicy stuff yeah. you need a babysitter i have a roster of babysitters excellent and you have the pause vibe tribe now yeah so there we go you're like uh, camille grammar how many nannies do you have <laughs> i have a nanny and i have a roster of babysitters and Oren can also go on overnights at my sisters so okay kinda, great don't like you're gonna have no problems you need four nannies two night nannies and two day nannies oh okay <laughs> that's, that's how they roll in beverly hills it's like that makes perfect that sense makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. and then a very hungover daddy sounds great to me yeah did Maybe. you say hung daddy yeah <laughs> <laughs> They, they don't family you're probably gonna listen to this <laughs> well welcome yeah <laughs> okay Donick, thank you so much for sharing your story and welcome to the pod five tribe we're so lucky to have you back in ireland here with us thank you I yeah i really appreciate it it's been really fun yes okay folks we'll talk again soon remember world aids day party at the george december first Perfect. friday it's got the one and only charity case and Robbie Lawler. <laughs> and Veda Lady, of course. Okay, Veda, do you want to end this beautiful podcast? Well, I just want to stay powerful. And I want to stay positive. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Pause Vibe Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, show us you care by leaving a review wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Pause Vibe Podcast for all the latest news and updates.